My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and this is our last service before Christmas. How about that? Uh, we are super excited that this Friday uh, we'll be having our services from three to five. In fact, as a staff, we are so excited, we just couldn't help but jump in front of a camera and put together a little invite video. So check this out. You're going to love it. Christmas is almost here. We would love to celebrate with you. Join us on Christmas Eve. December 24th at 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. We have a seat for you in person. Or enjoy service from the comfort of your own home. And we'll have kids programming for birth through pre-K. Take pictures with your family and friends. In our winter wonderland. Enjoy some cookies. And some hot cocoa. Christmas Eve in a set. It is so much fun, you guys. It is. You're going to want to be here. Invite your friends, your neighbors. Come on in. And seriously, we are going to be talking about the birth of Jesus, God coming into this world. What other, what better reason to celebrate? So come in 3 o'clock, 5 o'clock, celebrate Christmas Eve with us all. Santa looks good on me, doesn't it? No, 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 no. 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 Merry Christmas. Christmas. <laughs> How about that? You know, there were a lot of shots, and all except one got done in a single try. Can you guess which one took a lot of effort? It's the one with Bill in it. Every time that dude gets in front of a camera, it takes an eternity. They uh, had a lot of fun, but it was really fun to do that. Uh, that's actually going to be available online. We hope that you'll repost it, retweet it, send it to somebody you love. We want to see this place be full of people who, who don't know today where to go on Friday. Um, and we hope that that can just be a tool that we put in your toolbox in order to, to help figure out how do you um, create an opportunity for the people in your life who you love, who might be open to coming to a church on Christmas Eve, but don't know where to go um, as one way to let them know that they can come here with you. Um, every time that Aisha, one of our other teaching pastors, gets up here, she always starts off with a thing about how you, you, uh, this is supposed to be interactive. And so I'm going to do an interactive part, so that's your warning. Uh, so for those of you who are introverts and you got to get yourself right emotionally to say anything out loud, if there's more than five people in the room, get yourself right emotionally. Uh, we're going to have a little trivia game here, all right? Uh, and so I'm going to say the name of a character from a story. It could be a TV show, a movie, a book, whatever. And if you know who that is, I want you to say what the story it's from is. Does that make sense? Got it? And there's, uh, I'm up here, you're over there, you got a mask on, you got to be loud. So um, we'll start off with some easy ones, right? I'll say Steve Rogers. Captain America. Captain America. There we go. Well done. Um, all right. We'll get it a little bit harder. Uh, Seamus Finnegan. Harry Potter, good. He shared a dormitory in Gryffindor Tower with Harry Neville and Ron, of course. Um, all right, this one, Roy Kent. Ted Lasso, he's here, he's there. He, don't, don't finish it. Can't. Uh, Fitzwilliam Darcy. Pride and Prejudice, very good. All right, let's try some harder ones. Edna Krabappel. The Simpsons, yes. Well played. Dominic Toretto. Fast and the Furious. Furious. Good job. John McClane. Die Hard, the best Christmas movie. Um, Okay. (laughs) Susan Pevensey. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Nice. I wonder if anybody would get that one. Dean Thomas. Another Harry Potter. He was the other guy up in their dorm. Uh, All right. This is the hardest one. 
Zechariah of the order of Abijah. The Christmas story, guys. <laughs> Christmas is on Saturday. Come on. So Zechariah. That game gets a lot harder when you stop talking about the main characters, right? If you say Homer Simpson, it's really easy to get the Simpsons. If you say Harry Potter, it's really easy to get Harry Potter, right? When you start getting into some of the minor characters, it's harder to remember. But here's the thing. So Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, they play a role in the Christmas story that can be really easy, easily missed, but it should not be overlooked. They get pretty dramatically outshined by their son, John, who will grow up to become John the Baptist, and by his cousin, Jesus, who is kind of a big deal. Um, but I think that Zechariah and Elizabeth um, are really interesting characters who are worth pausing on and taking a deeper look. So I'm going to read their story to you, and this is going to be a pretty long passage, so fair warning there. Uh, we will put it on the screens, but because it's longer, um, you don't, if that helps you to read that, then do so. Um, you can also just kind of listen along as I read because uh, it is a bit, you know, it's a story. I kept thinking about like trying to break it up into chunks, but a story des deserves to be told as a full story. So this is Luke chapter one, starting at verse five. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and both were getting on in years. Once when he was serving as priest before God and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified, and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord." He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, how will I know that this is so? For I am an old man, and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak until the day these things occur. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered at his delay in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. 
After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she remained in seclusion. She said, this is what the Lord has done for me when he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. This is such a good story. There's so much in there. You know, there's humor, there's heartbreak, there's rejoicing, there's fear. In fact, there's so much in this story that it entirely changed what I thought I was going to be talking about in this sermon. When I, uh, when I picked this passage and chose this, I thought what I was going to be doing was giving you a comparison of how uh, Zechariah responds to Gabriel showing up and saying, you're going to have a son. The very next story in Luke is the same angel Gabriel appearing to Mary and telling her that she is also going to have a son. Now, as you heard, Zechariah doesn't do so well, right? If it's a test, he fails it. Angel appears, tells him what's going to happen. He doubts the angel. He talks back, right? Mary is going to crush it, right? She like nails. She does exactly what you're supposed to do uh, when Gabriel shows up. And I was going to talk about how different they are. I was so ready to give that sermon, I even made a chart. Check out this chart. Uh, This tracks some of the differences between Zechariah and Mary, right? So Zechariah is a person of high status. He's a priest. He lives in the hill country outside of Jerusalem. It's kind of a big city. Um, He's kind of a big deal. Mary is a low status person. You hear in the story who Zech- what like family Zechariah is from, what family Elizabeth is from, you don't hear anything about Mary. She's from a place called Nazareth, which is almost never mentioned in other literature until after Jesus because it was such just a podunk, backwoods town, right? He's from the big city. She's from the small town. You can see a difference here. He's urban and uh, dignified, and she is kind of living out in the sticks. Zechariah is... An adult. He's a super adult. Uh, She's a child. She's too young to be in this situation. For Zechariah, pregnancy is a good thing. For Mary, not so much. For him, having a child, you know, Elizabeth will say at the end, like, God, you have answered this disgrace that we've been forced to live in. It's a great news for him. Being, uh, Being pregnant at this stage in her life is not great news for Mary. Because Zechariah is married, Mary is betrothed. Uh, Betrothal is not really something we do anymore. It is a little different than engaged, but you're not supposed to be knocked up yet, is the moral of the story there. Um, Zechariah is a priest. He has a title. He has a leadership role, right? Mary is a woman living in an extremely patriarchal society that was often uh, oppressive and diminishing of women. Zechariah is educated. Later in the story, he will write. You know that he can read and write. He's a trained, educated person. The vast majority of people are illiterate in this time. It's actually a a very high honor of esteem to be able to read. This is not something that Mary would have been able to do. Further, Zechariah uh, gets to see his son be born in his home, right? In a clean place while Mary gives birth to her son in a stable, in a barn, The birth of John is witnessed by their friends and neighbors, as recorded in the scripture, whereas the birth of Jesus is attended by shepherds who are a very dishonored group and a bunch of barnyard animals, right? You see in this story this huge difference between the two, where you would think that Zechariah, the educated priest, would know what to do when the agent of God appears magically before you and tells you a promise, but he doesn't get it right. 
And the story gives us all of these reasons to think that, well, it'd be understandable if Mary kind of freaks out a little bit. But she doesn't. So the whole sermon, I thought, was going to be about this amazing way that this story and the rest of the scriptures constantly chooses the small thing to shame the big thing. That the biggest, the best things, the people that God chooses to do incredible work through are the unassuming, the ones you would never expect, that God chooses the underdog, right? But as I kept reading, I just couldn't help it. I, I, I thought this sermon was going to be about Zechariah as the heel and Mary as the hero. I kind of thought he was going to be the villain, so to speak, in this story. But as I read it, I just couldn't help but relate to Zechariah a lot more than I related to Mary. Because I think there's a little bit more of me in him than in her. Because see, Zechariah is somebody who has dealt with crushing disappointment. Who has lived life where things didn't go the way that he thought and expected them to. Is that true for anyone else? If you've ever dealt with, with crushing disappointment, it basically always comes after a moment of hope or excitement, right? You can't be disappointed in how things turned out until you thought it was going to go differently. For me, like a, a big example of that, I'm just a kid from Kansas City, right? I was born in 1982. In 1985, the Kansas City Royals won the World Series. I was three, don't remember it. They then didn't play in a playoff game again for 29 years. So the 29 years I remembered, they were never good, always awful, until something crazy happened in 2014. A scrappy, unexpected team out of the Midwest got hot at the end of the season, won 89 games, not enough to unseat the Detroit Tigers to win the division, but enough to sneak into the AL wildcard game where they ran into a very tough Oakland A's team. If you are a baseball fan and you've never watched the 2014 AL wildcard game, it's one of the best games of baseball ever played. At the time, it was the longest game ever played in a winner-take-all situation. It took 12, in, uh, 12 innings to get to the end of that game. In that time, the Royals trailed and caught up three different times, including the bottom of the ninth and the bottom of the 12th. The A's at the trade deadline had gone out and gotten John Lester, a guy who at that time was like the most unhittable force in the postseason. So when he walked out and had a lead, you knew this game was over, but it wasn't. <laughs> because the Royals kept plugging away. And in the bottom of the 12th, they tied it after having given up the lead in the top of the 12th and then brought in the go-ahead run. They won that game. The next morning, I'd watched that game in a small apartment with my childhood best friend. The next day, I felt like... Um, I'd done like 10,000 squats because I had, because on every pitch I was like, oh, ah, like, like I hurt because I was so pumped about that game, right? And then, so they win that game. Then they go into the American League Division Series where they sweep the impossible to beat Angels of Anaheim. It was amazing, right? And then they go to the American League Championship Series where they sweep the Baltimore Orioles, which I had to go back and check to make sure it really was them because they're so bad. I couldn't imagine that they were actually in the championship, but they were. And then they find themselves, our plucky little hometown team, in the World Series against the San Francisco Giants. And wouldn't you know it, I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area. Further, my childhood best friend, best friend to this day, also lived there. And we're like, gosh, 
Our team that never wins is in the World Series. We live far from home. They're playing the team from here. It's a sign. So we ponied up, we both work in churches, but we ponied up every dollar we could spare. We bought standing room only tickets and we went to game four at what was then AT&T Park. I don't know what it's called now. Um, and they lost. It was kind of a bummer. But it's okay, because they weren't out of the series. That, that series went to seven games and the Royals lost. I was so bummed. My whole life, I had never imagined the Royals being in a World Series. I'd never even seen them, like, have a winning season. And they were there. And they were playing in the place where I lived far from home. And my childhood best friend happened. All, all these things lined up, right? They had to win, and they didn't. And all I could think about was, this will never happen again. All of the stars that had to align to get to this point... All of the providence that had to play out through an 162-game season and then the playoffs for this to happen, and then they didn't do it. And I was so disappointed. It just felt like it had slipped away. Now, surprise, surprise, the next year they were the best team in baseball from the first pitch to the last, and they blew out the Mets in the World Series, but that didn't really help the sermon, so try to forget about that. <laughs> I was really really disappointed when the Royals lost game seven. I'd actually, at my, my church that I served at in California is a really big church. There's about 90 people on staff. We were at an all-staff retreat, and I left without permission because I knew I wasn't going to be able to handle all those Giants fans if it didn't go the way I wanted, and I'm really glad I wasn't there. I probably would have lost my job. Um, <laughs> that was really disappointing. But there's a kind of disappointment that stings a lot worse than when your hometown team comes out of nowhere and then loses the big game. The kind of disappointment we feel when a job is lost and maybe a job from which we drew a little too much meaning and purpose in our life. The kind of disappointment that comes when a marriage ends. Something that started with so much hope and promise about a forever together and forever ends a little too soon kind of disappointment that comes when we have a life-changing injury and the things that we used to be able to do, we can't do anymore. The kind of disappointment that comes when somebody we love is taken from this life a little too soon. You know, my, I was a, a 24 years old when my dad died, and that was a big loss, but one thing I wasn't ready for at the beginning was the disappointment I was going to continue to feel at every other change of chapter in my life that he wasn't gonna be there now. He wasn't there when I graduated uh, from grad school. He wasn't there when I got engaged, when I got married, when my kids were born. That they will never know him as their grandpa. This dis it's a disappointment that lingers. Zechariah and Elizabeth had to deal with a kind of disappointment that I know a lot of people in this room have become very well acquainted with. For years and years, they just wanted to be parents. They just wanted a child. And that's not a selfish desire, right? It's not like they just wanted a big sack of gold and a castle on the hill. They wanted the chance to love and tend and care for somebody who was incapable of doing it for themselves. Further adding to the feel is that in that culture, it was considered a real source of shame to be childless. 
and shame to the level of like receiving public derision. It hurt. They were disappointed. But in our story, right, we find Zechariah and Elizabeth. They are old. They are past their kind of expected years of childbearing. And through it all, they have remained faithful, but they have not remained hopeful. And that's our setting. When Zechariah walks into the sanctuary, that is what he is bringing in with them. This couple who had lived their life with great hope and excitement, only to have it followed by deep and lasting disappointment. And so Zechariah, it says he's called upon uh, for his time of service. Uh, the, the role of the priesthood in ancient Israel was hereditary. It was attached to your family. And so if you were from the priestly family, you were guaranteed a job, right? And there were, at this time, about 18,000 priests in Israel. And so you were assigned to an order. He's in the order of Abijah. And each order would serve two one-week-long kind of shifts in the temple a year. And aside from that, they would live out in their hometown. We know they lived up in the hills above Jerusalem, where they would be somewhat of a community leader and teacher um, in there. And so that, that's, our, that's our setting. Zechariah, you know, it's just twice a year. He goes down into Jerusalem to serve in the temple. And then it says that he was chosen by lot to actually be the one to go into the sanctuary and give the offering. This is a big honor and a really big deal. And something that a priest could only do once in their lifetime. This is kind of like the highest moment of his professional career. He's been chosen to do that. He walks in. He's going about his business. And then he sees what we can only assume is a giant glowing winged dude. Right? We know he's got to be big and glow because it says that Zechariah is terrified and overcome with fear. Right? It's not just like a guy in there. There's something, something he knows. This is, this is kind of a big deal terrified, and fear overwhelmed him. Those are the words uh, in the Bible. That seems pretty reasonable, right? I think I would be too. But his response of fear is going to be the last reasonable thing that he's going to do. Because the angel is then going to say to Zechariah the words that he has spent his whole life praying to hear. The angel is going to tell him exactly what he wanted to have happen. And so you just know there's only one possible response here. Zechariah is going to start jumping up and down and shouting and clapping and kiss the angel's feet. It's going to be like when Oprah starts giving stuff away, you know, a lot of like hand waving, right? That's the only thing that makes sense. He's got to respond that way, right? Except he doesn't. There's no thankfulness, there's no gratitude. In fact, he kind of gives the angel attitude. He like talks back. You can tell that that Gabriel wasn't pleased, right? He's like, son, I am Gabriel. I stand with God and have been sent to you. Check the halo, man. Like you can almost see like Gabriel probably like put his hands on his hips. Like you want to try that again? Like what are you, what, right? So here's what strikes me most about the story. It told us that when Zechariah first sees the angel, he is terrified He is overwhelmed with fear, right? I think he was more terrified at the thought of letting hope creep back into his heart. To respond to the servant of God who shows up in a magical, supernatural way, the way that he did, he was more afraid 
of letting hope return to his heart than he was of the place that he was standing. That was the scarier thing. He'd spent his whole life hoping for a moment like this. And when it came, he wasn't ready to receive it. That resonates with me. Maybe it does for you too, that we can have this self-protective instinct that we hold inside of us. It tells us to guard our hearts from disappointment rather than believing the message of good news. Maybe you've had that moment when waiting to hear back after a job interview. Maybe you decided to not even submit the resume for the job you wanted because you convinced yourself that you didn't deserve it or couldn't get it. Maybe you, like me, have spent more time sitting in doctor's offices waiting for her to come back in and give you the result of the test that you have been so terrified about that you almost can't stand to hear the good news because you prepared yourself so fully for the bad. <laughs> My wife tells a story about being in elementary school and there was this boy she had a crush on and he called her one night uh, to the family phone. Um, for those of you who are younger than me, we used to have phones that were attached to walls in our houses. Um, and so if you would have to call there and like, uh, it was really scary. Oh, also, back in that time, we used to actually ask out, like ask people out, say, would you go on a date with me or be my boyfriend or girlfriend? Um, and horses pulled our cars. They were wild times. Um, <laughs> this boy calls the family phone every night for a month. 30 straight days and asked her out. And she really liked him, really wanted to say yes. She said no 30 straight times because she was too afraid to say yes, <laughs> right? What are those times in our lives when the good news feels harder to accept than the bad news? What dreams have we given up on because it hurt too much to continue to hope? That's the moment Zechariah is sitting in. It hurts too much to let hope back in. So he ends up getting disciplined by the angel, right? Essentially, the angel says, you're in timeout for nine months. Think about what you've done. So he can't talk. He walks out. He still can't talk. He's been in there too long. The people outside are all praying, and they're like, Where, what's going on? And he like has to play charades. Can you imagine that? He's like... <laughs> like... I. <laughs> It's got to be weird, right? It's all these people. He's playing charades. He gets home to his wife. And these two people who have known a lot about waiting have nine months to relearn it in a whole new way. This time waiting in hopeful expectation. And then eventually, their little boy is born, and Zechariah gets his voice back in that moment. And in that moment, he uses his voice to do what he should have done from the beginning. He begins to loudly profess his gratitude to God. This is what he says. It's uh, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 67. When his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke this prophecy... Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David. 
as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus, he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. I love those last two verses. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah and Elizabeth were role players. They had a bit part in the Christmas story, right? But they are also a microcosm of the whole gospel. See, we live in a world that houses great joy and beauty and goodness. But there is also a deep aching and disappointment that permeates all of us. There is a yearning within humanity for something different. Zechariah and Elizabeth are an example of people who got the specifics of what their hearts desired when their little boy John was born. But there is another baby who was born in this story. John's birth represented hope restored and the heart's deepest desire redeemed for Zechariah and Elizabeth. But in that other baby, we have the restoration of hope for all humankind. The yearning of all creation will be satisfied in him. So on Friday, we'll be back here at three and five to celebrate our Christmas Eve services. And when we come, we are celebrating that birth that meant that darkness will not reign forever. That light will come that the age of tears will pass away and that a new day will dawn. So my prayer to close us is gonna be those final words of Zechariah's prayer. By the tender mercy of our God, the tender mercy, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Amen.